All right, so let's pray and get into this word. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to get into your word. Thank you for leaving this record behind of uh, your involvement with uh, your people uh, in Corinth. And I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his willingness to be your servant. I thank you for how you transformed him and used him in a mighty way. Pray that we'll understand not just his words, but your word as you communicated it through this servant of yours, this vessel of yours. Open our hearts and open our minds in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, once again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So that's who it's from. Notice he says this a lot. I'm just going to pause and mention this. He says Christ Jesus. Do you ever say that? Don't we always say Jesus Christ, like Christ is his last name? Right? My name's Daryl Hall, right? So, and his name was Jesus Christ. That's not right. That's incorrect. They didn't use last names like we do back then, all right? We have surnames, right? My surname is Hall. And a given name, given name is Daryl. Well, Jesus obviously had a given name right? Which the English version of that name is Jesus, but it's Yeshua, right? Which is essentially the Hebrew name Joshua. That was his name. His name was Joshua, okay? Which means Yahweh saves, okay? Christ is a title. It's a title that means Messiah. That's the Hebrew word or anointed one, chosen one. So the chosen one, Jesus. So when the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul uses uh, Jesus' name in this manner the majority of the time. We just kind of overlook it. But he says Christ Jesus, the anointed one, Yeshua, Messiah, Jesus, right? So Christos is the, the Greek version of that word, okay? But... Uh, Hamashiach, right, is the, is the Hebrew, the Messiah, right? So the Messiah, Jesus. By the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. And Achaia would have been, and I, I'm going to have uh, Elijah put a map up here in a bit. Um, Achaia would have been in what is today properly Greece, Okay. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he goes the other way, Lord Jesus Christ, because he, so the term Lord is uh, dictating that, that phrase now, that name, okay? So the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ. But when he doesn't put Lord, he says Christ Jesus. Verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So 
the Apostle Paul says some difficult things to the Corinthians in these two letters that are preserved, but he always indicates his optimism that they are indeed God's people and that he has the highest hope for them. And my experience, um, I would say increasingly people are decreasingly capable of enduring criticism. Now, criticism sounds negative. Just the word sounds negative, doesn't it? Right? Sounds like somebody's trying to run you down. But criticism can be constructive. That doesn't mean it's always constructive. Some people are criticizing you just to put you down and put themselves up. But a wise person accepts, accepts criticism. And we accept criticism from people that we respect. So on Sunday, um, I emphasize that we shouldn't take to heart criticism or put-downs from people who we don't respect, who don't respect us. But consider someone in your life that you do respect, and they offer some criticism rather than wilting under that criticism or becoming angry at that criticism, would it not be more healthy? Would it not make you stronger to accept that criticism and consider the changes that you might be able to make as the result of that criticism? Now realize that even the people you respect and love are not always going to uh, offer the kind of criticism, or I will say criticism in a way that it is easy for you to receive. And so we may get angry with them. We may not like their tone. Uh, we may misinterpret their intention. But I think that what we need to do is we need to evaluate that person in accordance with our overall relationship with them, not this moment in time where we're upset over this, that, or the other thing. So the Apostle Paul offers a good bit of encouragement and admonition and some criticism uh, for the Corinthians. And uh, obviously his hope is that they will receive that criticism appropriately. All right. So I focused last time on the statement that uh, Paul was an apostle by the will of God. And I spoke of... Uh, people in our world today, and this was true in Paul's day as well, who use the term apostle or prophet or bishop, right? Or even pastor to elevate themselves. My friend, anybody can step up and call themselves those names because, you know, there's not a standard licensing body that says, okay, in the days of the Roman Catholic Church, um, Catholic means universal, right? So in the days of the Catholic Church, there was just one church. You couldn't call yourself a bishop unless you were actually a bishop, according to the church. But today, anybody can just step up, you know? I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, you know, I think I want to start a church. And I just want to shake my head and say, why? <laughs> really, why? Is God calling you to do that? Well, you know, I just think I'd like to. I don't think that's a good reason. I really don't. God needs to call you to do that sort of thing. 
And it's, it's like starting a business, right? Or having a little cottage industry out of your house, you know? Well, I'm going to have some revenue streams, and one of them is going to be a church. Well, that's ridiculous. That's not God's church. God has to call you to an office, right? Pastor-teacher is an office in the church. Um, and by the way, pastor-teacher, elder, bishop, it's all the same office. Different terms, and they're used differently in different denominations, but in the Bible, they mean the same thing. These were those who oversaw the church, right? That's what a bishop is. A bishop is an overseer. And pastor is just a term that means a shepherd. Well, what did a shepherd do? A shepherd oversaw the sheep, right? Watched over the sheep. Um, so all that to say, and I mentioned this uh, to a more lengthy degree last week, um, don't trust someone just because they have a title, right? Where did the title come from? Who gave them the title? Why are they being called, you know, okay, prophet? What, what does that mean? Anybody can say, well, I'm a prophet. In fact, if you've got to call yourself a prophet, I'm walking the other way. Self-proclaimed people are not people that you and I need to be listening to. We need to be paying attention to those who simply operate in the gifts and the authority of the Word of God. And then others will say, I believe that that person speaks prophetically. I believe that person is, uh, you know, forth-telling, speaking forth the Word of God. But today, if you're just, you know, charming enough, right, if you look good enough, if you're funny Really, if you're funny, you can get a church going. Uh, you know, if you're a celebrity, well, you know, you start a church and there's just a group of people that are going to gather around you because of your celebrity. None of those are reasons to start a church, and none of those are reasons for someone to uh, call themselves uh, by these various titles that we're talking about, all right? So avoid those who are self-proclaimed any of these things, all right? So let's look at verse 3 now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, he inverts Jesus and Christ because he puts Lord in the beginning. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And the following verses are focused on that idea of comfort. So God is called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a, uh, a misunderstanding today uh, among many people, that we are all children of God. We are not all children of God. Or why do you need to be reborn and adopted into the family of God? You are God's creation. You are special. You are made in his image. And the Apostle Paul called us the offspring of God, but that's not the same as the children of God, okay? So Pastor Craig is with our uh, children, the children of, uh, that are part of our church at camp uh, this week, uh, tonight. And he has two of his children with them, right? So he has uh, Jubilee and Asher with him. Um, Shiloh's too young, so he stayed home. So we have Craig's mom here, Jubilee and Asher are not her children. They're her grandchildren, right? They're her offspring, right? Um, Sue's father passed away several years ago. Uh, 
he liked to be called blue. Well, they were not his children either. They were his great-grandchildren. They were his offspring. We go all the way back to Adam, right? And Adam was the son of God. But I'm not the son of God. Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God. I am a son of the Father because of Jesus, because I've been adopted into the family. We need to communicate that clearly. We're all not children of God and we're all not going to heaven. If we're all going to heaven, heaven's going to be like this earth. And have you looked around at what's going on today? That's not necessarily a place that any of us would want to be, right? So um, Jesus is unique, right? Um, he is the only begotten Son of God. And the only way that we become children of God is through Jesus. Then he calls, uh, the Apostle Paul calls uh, God the Father of mercies. Uh, the word that is translated mercies here is really a, a good word for our English word compassion, right? Compassion is actually a relatively recent word in the English language, right? And it means that you feel for someone, right? You have uh, a, a, a sympathy for them, compassion for them, concern for them, right? Older terms would be terms like pity, right? You pity them. You pity their misfortune, Um each time the children of Israel in the Old Testament cried out to God in their troubles, he had compassion on them, right? He felt for them. Now, there are people that don't think God has any feelings. Believe it or not, there are theologians that would say, well, God can't have any feelings. Otherwise, he's subject to change and God's unchangeable. But God in his mysterious uh, essence is capable of feeling just like you are capable of feeling, so if you've been following me in our study through the holy history, you remember that when the people of Israel were crying out um, because of their, their taskmasters in Egypt, that God had what? Compassion on them. Exodus 3, 7, when Moses meets God at the burning bush on the mountain. And the Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their outcry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So he's suffering along with them. He feels for them. Friend, that should be good news for you. There can be a tendency to think of God as being so far out there and above us that maybe he doesn't know what's going on or doesn't care what's going on. Or maybe just doesn't care what's going on with you. And if you've come up in an environment where, I don't know, perhaps you had a, a father that was not there, maybe that wasn't that father's fault. Could be a father that passed away. Could be a father that it is his fault. He abandoned you. Could be a father that was just emotionally distant. We have a tendency in the natural to look at God the Father through the perspective of our earthly fathers. And as I said on Father's Day... Uh, before I introduce Pastor Craig, rather than using our human fathers as our models for God, we need to see Father God as the appropriate and proper model for our human fathers. 
And if our human fathers don't measure up, we look to Jesus, the Son of God, who introduces us to the Father and helps us to overcome those challenges that we have with earthly fathers uh, that perhaps did not model God very well. God does care. He cared for his people then. He cares for you now. And the ultimate proof of that is Jesus, right? He sent Jesus to earth to die on the cross for our sins. And that is the ultimate compassion for us. He died so that we could be his children. If you go through the book of Judges, oh mercy, friends, just read the book of Judges. If you want to see how messed up the, you know, people can be, you think people today are messed up, read the book of Judges. It, there was this constant cycle of sin with the people of Israel. They would turn toward idols and turn away from God. And then God would send oppressors in to discipline them. And then they would cry out, and each time they cried out, God would hear them. And then he would send, we call them judges. They were really more like deliverers, saviors, really, okay? He would send a judge in, but they were military deliverers. And that judge would come in and save them from the oppressors, uh, whatever nationality or uh, group of oppressors that happened to be at the time. But that cycle happens over and over again. So in Judges 3, 9, 3, 15, 4, 3, 6, 6, 10, 10 through 16, each time it says that the people cried out. There was an outcry from the people, right? And God responded. When you cry out, God responds. You may think, wow, this is, I've just cried out to God too many times. He's got to be sick of hearing from me. He's not. He knows you. He knew you when he saved you. He hasn't given up on you. Keep crying out, right? Um, I like that, uh, that little acronym, I guess you would call it. I actually saw this on the, uh, the back of a, uh, a church van one time. It said, push. P period, U period, S period, H period. And then under that, it uh, said what that means. Pray until something happens. Just keep crying out to God until something happens, right? We don't know what else to do. What else can we do? We try to trust God. We try to love God. But when things are so difficult and so challenging, we've just got to cry out. And God knows and he hears because he is the father of mercies. Then he's called the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's a really kind of convoluted phrase, but it just basically means God is going to comfort you and now you can comfort other people the same way he comforted you, right? Um, one of the things that I say at funerals is that uh, people need to permit God to comfort them, all right? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. How can you be blessed when you're in mourning? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, not because they're mourning, because they will be comforted by God. The blessing comes from the comfort that God offers. So what we need to do, I 
again, at funerals, I tell people, give yourself permission to grieve. But don't grieve like someone who has no hope. Grieve and allow God to offer comfort because he will. He will step in. In fact, the Holy Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's titles, one of his names is what? The comforter. That's what he wants to do. He wants to offer you comfort. Now, it might not be something as uh, difficult as a, you know, as a funeral. We can, we can mourn other things. We can mourn the loss of plenty of other things. And you know, then we need to turn that over to God and not be distrustful, or I should say mistrustful, of God. See, if you shake your fist at God... If you blame God rather than praising God, then you don't receive this comfort. Now, I'm not saying that God can't handle, you know, your, your temporary anger, but we really are doing God and ourselves and everybody else around us disservice when we're plastering the blame on God for everything. And this goes along with uh, last Sunday's message Uh, You know, the people of Israel were always grumbling, 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 grumbling. Well, in the end, that's just blaming God. They ended up blaming God for everything that happened to them rather than trusting God for saving them, praising God for who he is, thanking God for delivering them from slavery. Instead, they grumbled so much that they blamed God and then they blasphemed and accused God of dragging them out into the wilderness to kill them. So they were turning God into this monster, this evil personality. That's not God, friends. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I think God's rough on his kids, right? Um, I've got plenty of moms here this evening. Moms like to comfort their kids, right? Moms don't like their babies to hurt, period. Daddies are more apt to say, throw some dirt on it, get up, let's go, right? And, you know, I, yeah, I've had plenty of opportunities to coach children and teenagers and so forth. And, you know, I want, there's a need for comfort. And just, we just said God is the God of all comfort. That's what we're talking about right now. But God's primary purpose is to make us holy, to make us more like Jesus. And that means, going back to Pastor Craig's message two weeks ago, we've got to go through discipline. And we've got to go through training. And that's challenging. That's difficult. But in the midst of that training and that difficulty, even then, God comforts us. So anybody work out? Anybody go and work out? Run, lift, do anything to work out? I can't tell you how many times, because I work out six days a week, almost six days a week, almost always six days a week. I didn't work out Monday because I took the uh, kids to camp and I just didn't go to the gym because I have a pattern. I, I have a routine. I go in the morning and I took the kids to camp in the morning. So I skipped the routine. That's if you have good habits going, it's real easy to get out of that habit just by skipping. Right. So, but I can't tell you how many times I'm like, I don't want to work out today. I don't want to work out today. Right. And even in the midst of working out, I'm like, I'm too old for this. This hurts, right? I don't like it. There's always something. There's always some problem. There's always something aching and whatever. But almost always when I'm done, 
I feel good, right? Um, I feel good because I'm glad that I, you know, continued the routines. That's the psychological side. But physically, I just feel better. And I give the Lord thanks. So even when you're going through that time of training in the wilderness, God offers this comfort, right? Um, so the Greek word that is translated comfort here um, is uh, paraklesis. That's the, the noun. Or parakaleo, that's the verb, right? If I comfort you, that's a verb, right? If you receive comfort, that's a noun, right? Comfort is the, is the noun there. Um, so it's the word uh, parakaleo. Well, just a moment ago, I said that one of the names for the Holy Spirit is what? Comforter. It's this word. It's the paraclete, right? The comforter, the counselor. It literally means, the word literally means one who is called alongside you. That should be comforting, right? The Holy Spirit is called alongside you to walk with you. Um, one of the reasons that we can be miserable is because we think we're going through this by ourselves and nobody cares. That's not true. Maybe no earthly person is showing concern at this moment in time. But you are being lied to if you agree that nobody cares because God cares. Now, once you receive his comfort, that empowers you not just to sit back and say, wow, I feel so much better. Now I'm just going to go and live my life. No, now that empowers you to be used by God as a tool, right? And I mean that in the healthiest possible sense, right? To be used, let's use the word instrument, okay? To comfort someone else, right? So there are plenty of people in the world who don't pay a bit of attention to God. They just don't believe. They don't have the faith. They don't trust God. They have all of the reasons, you know, that they perhaps would list, but, you know, you can step alongside them and comfort them. Friends, I, I got to say this to you. We need to stop thinking about ourselves so much. How often do you talk about yourself? How often do you think about yourself? How often is the focus on self? So, what I need and what you need is to receive this comfort from God, this encouragement from God, and that permits us to just let go of self. What I like to say is you need to get yourself out of the windshield and into the rearview mirror, right? You got to glance over there occasionally. Okay, make sure. But look at the big wide world out here in front of you. Love other people. Let Jesus love you and then get out of your selfishness. Turn toward the big wide world and love people. And you say, well, the world's pretty messed up. Good, you can pray for it, amen? You, you can be an intercessor, right? And that's one thing that we can do. So, um, you know, there's people, there, there are people who are hurting all around us and we need to be concerned about them. The first thing that we can do when we think about them is pray for them. The second thing we can do is call them, 
We're more apt to text these days, and that's fine. But I will say that nothing takes the place of personal contact. It just doesn't. You send someone a text, that's great. That lets them know you're there. And I will do that a lot of times because these days, y'all don't answer your phones. That's the problem. <laughs> right? It's just like, we've, you know, we don't even, yeah, we, we want to send texts or tweets or whatever. Um, and, uh, and if you, you know, if you need to enter into any form of serious conversation with somebody, text is a terrible way to do that. Texts are so easily misunderstood. Call them and then set up a meeting and sit across from them and talk to them and love on them. Right. And you're not perfect. You don't you're not going to have all of the perfect words to say. But, you know, Jesus told his disciples that they shouldn't even worry about planning ahead for what they should say uh, if they, you know, in the case he was, he was speaking of the case in which they might be arrested or not might be, but would be arrested for following him. He said, don't plan ahead. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. Wait a minute. The Holy Spirit is who again? The comforter, the counselor, the guide. He's the one that is the spirit of truth. So you need to be tapped into the Holy Spirit. Let him comfort you. Let him counsel you. Let him lead you and follow him. And then comfort other people. Think about somebody other than yourself. We really need to do this, friends. It's absolutely imperative. Okay? Um, so there was a problem that existed between the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth. And these we see the issue cropping up uh, in both the first letter and in this one. In the first letter, the, the, the first Corinthians, we see that there is a, a rift in the church. There are divisions in the church. They were saying, I am a Paul, I am of Apollos, I am a Cephas, that's Peter. Well, we are of Christ. So they were dividing up into all these groups. It's, you know, denominationalism today. I'm a Methodist, I'm a Baptist, I'm non-denominational. What does that even mean? <laughs> I always tell people, they, you know, they say, well, what, you know, what are your church non-denominational? I say, yeah. I say, but we're really pretty much a Baptist church with a non-denominational outreach. Because, you know, I got saved in a Baptist church and about 90% of my theology aligns with Baptists. I want them to know where I come from. This nonsense, non-denominational doesn't, honestly, it doesn't mean anything. I always ask, when a church says it's non-denominational, I always ask where their ministers, their preachers, their bishops, their pastors, where they were trained. What did they come out of? Oh, Assembly of God. Oh, Baptist. Then that's what they are. <laughs> okay? You know? So give, give me a baseline to push off of. Okay? And I would say... You know, two-thirds of the people in our church do not come from a Baptist context. And I am far more open to the gifts of the Spirit than Baptists are, right? So, but see, you understand. Here's a basis for you. And you can say, oh, okay, okay? I'm not a Pentecostal. I'm not Assemblies. I'm not a Presbyterian. I'm not a Methodist, okay? I can agree with a variety of things in those denominations. But I'm trying very hard to preach God's word 
and to teach you so that you can interpret it for yourself. And by the way, that's one of the main reasons why I'm not ashamed to still be called a Baptist. Baptists believe in the priesthood of the believer. That means you don't have to go through me to get to God. You can go straight to Jesus. I'm not a priest. Actually, I am, but so are you. We're all a nation of priests, okay? What I am is appointed to oversee and to teach. I'm educated, and so I can share that with you and equip and empower you to be the person that God called and created you to be. But I don't want to do everything in this church, even though I do a lot of things in this church. Um, I would love it. You know, when people come up and they, you know they have suggestions, I'm like, okay, how can I help you do that? <laughs> well, I think the church should do this. Well, you're the church. How can I help you do that? I'm happy to do that because I don't want to do anything else, right? I, I'm doing plenty already. So if you think the church should do something, then I'm going to be happy to help you figure out how to do it because you apparently have received the burden from the Lord. And so I'm going to help you unload that burden by equipping you to do whatever it is you believe we need to do because the church is not an institution. The church is a community. Amen. The church is us. Okay. Um, so here is a kind of a rundown from the expositors Bible commentary that gives you a little more um, background into what the apostle Paul was dealing with here. After the Corinthians received the first letter, uh, well, it's actually the second letter. As I said last week, 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter Paul wrote them. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, but we don't have 1 Corinthians, all right? It gets even more confusing. Then he wrote them another letter after that. That's 3 Corinthians, but we don't have that one either. And then he wrote them this letter. That's 4 Corinthians, which we call 2 Corinthians, all right? So 1st and 3rd Corinthians we don't have, 2nd and 4th Corinthians we do have. Um, those were the ones that the Lord saw fit to preserve. Well, after they received what we call 1st Corinthians, the Christians at Corinth probably um, handled most of the practical problems that they were dealing with there. Um, he says in this letter, he doesn't say anything more about the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Remember, there's like almost uh, half a chapter on that. Or Christians suing each other. There's like a chapter on that. In spite of this, though, the fact that they had addressed these problems and probably because of the arrival of some, uh, some false teachers from Palestine, probably Judaizers, uh, the Judaizing heresy came from a group of people and it cropped up early that said, if you want to be a follower of Messiah Jesus, you have to become a Jew first, right? In other words, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be a Jew first. And if you're going to be a Jew, then you have to follow the law. And uh, we find that in Acts, even James, who is the most pro-law, right? This is the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the book or letter, you might call it, that we have in our New Testament called James. He's very, very favorable to the law. Um, they all agreed Gentiles don't need to observe the law. Now, they're talking about the totality of the Old Testament law, not the Ten Commandments, which tell us basically, you know, essential morality. Um, he wasn't, they weren't saying, uh, well, you don't have to be under the law, so you can just go out and live wild. 
you know, eat, drink, and be merry and mess around with people and do all that. That's not what they were saying. They knew you had the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to lead you. What they meant was you don't need to, if you're a male, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to follow all the dietary laws. You don't need to follow all the laws about dress and cutting your beard and all these sorts of different things. That was the Jewish covenant law. Um, We would call it the old covenant because we're under the new covenant. So they said, no, you don't have to follow this. Um, That was the apostles and James. But you still had these roaming bands of Judaizers that were like, no, if you want to really be a Christian, then you need to be going to synagogue on Saturday. You need to avoid eating certain foods like shellfish and pork. Uh, you know, you, all of these things, okay? And that's, that was not what uh, the Apostle Paul was teaching, all right? At some time after, uh, so the Apostle Paul visited them, right? Uh, he, he has what he calls a painful visit, right? Um, at some time after that painful visit where the Apostle Paul's like, no, this is all wrong, let's correct this, Um, Then Paul, or perhaps one of his representatives, like Timothy, were openly insulted at Corinth by a spokesman of uh, the anti-Paul group. And we'll see that in uh, the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8. And it's also mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7, 12. So Titus was sent from Ephesus. Remember, Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote... uh, 1 Corinthians, Titus was sent from Ephesus to Corinth with the severe letter. Now, that's the one that we don't have, okay? That's after 1 Corinthians, before 2 Corinthians, right? There's a severe letter that was sent, and Titus brought that to them. And in that letter, Paul called for the punishment of a wrongdoer. Um, And we'll look at that in 2 Corinthians, uh, this letter. Uh, chapter 2, once again. So I'm kind of introducing some things that are going to come up in the next chapter right now. In addition, Paul instructed Titus to organize the collection for the saints at Jerusalem. Remember, that was mentioned a couple of times in 1 Corinthians, that they were they were taking up this collection that they were going to bring to those who were having severe financial problems at Jerusalem, okay? So he sent Titus to continue to uh, organize that and gather that. So Titus was to meet Paul in Troas, or failing that in Macedonia. So Troas is a city. Macedonia is a region. So that could have been Philippi or Thessalonica. Those are the two major cities in Macedonia. Paul left Ephesus. Now remember, Ephesus is across the Aegean. In fact, um, Elijah, why don't you put that, uh, that map up there of uh, the Apostle Paul's missionary journey? Uh, the one that says the third missionary journey is probably the best one. And uh, this will kind of give you an idea of what these places that I'm mentioning are. Because uh, I kind of tried to draw this for you uh, previously, but now you can see it up here. Okay. So way down here in the far right corner of the map, you see Judea. This is the second missionary journey, which would have been when he started the church at Corinth, right? You see how he moves up through Syria, right? He goes up toward his region. The Apostle Paul was from Cilicia, right? Then he goes across into this wider Galatian region, uh, uh, Lycaonia, right? Pisidian Antioch, 
Uh, Lystra right there is where he picked up Timothy on this second missionary journey. And he goes through Pisidian Antioch. And then he goes up and he skirts around Asia. Um, he was told specifically by the Holy Spirit that he wasn't to go into Asia Minor or Mysia. You can see it up there in the upper part, okay? And then he goes down, there's Troas. Now, you heard that city mentioned just a moment ago. I mentioned Troas. Troas is a city right there at the edge of Asia, Asia Minor. And it is from Troas that he would get on a ship. And he got the Macedonian call. He would get on a ship and go across the Aegean. That's that little bit of water. This broader body of water down here is the Mediterranean. And then going this body of water that goes up between Asia Minor and and you can see Macedonia, and you can see Achaia there. Um, that is uh, the Aegean Sea. So he goes across there. He starts the church at uh, Philippi and Thessalonica, and then he comes all the way down, and you see Achaia is in the green down there, and that's where Corinth is, right? So when Paul wrote the first and second Corinthian letters, or at least the first Corinthian letter, he was in Ephesus. Now, if you go back across the Aegean and you're in Asia Minor there, then you can see that Ephesus is right down there. Not Well, it, it is on the coast at this point in time. If you were to visit Ephesus today, uh, it would no longer be on the coast. There's, there's a lot of land that's there. But you can see Ephesus right there. Okay, That's where Paul wrote the letter from the, the city from whence he wrote 1 Corinthians. Okay, So... Now you have that, that map uh, in your mind, um, and you can see that Paul left Ephesus uh, shortly after a riot that is mentioned in Acts chapter 19, verse, verse 23, and he began evangelism in Troas, right? And then he suffered his affliction in Asia. He talks about how he was uh, at, even at the point of death. Then he crossed to Macedonia. So now we're, we're into the third missionary journey. So same map in your mind, but now you're understanding what's going to happen in this third missionary journey. He arrived in Macedonia with his welcome report of the Corinthians' responsiveness. So the Corinthians had responded favorably to that, that severe letter, right? So that's the, actually the third letter that Paul had written to them. The first letter we don't have. The second letter is our first Corinthians. The third letter is the severe letter. The fourth letter is our second Corinthians. And he visits them after a trip through Macedonia, and they had responded well to that. After this, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 1 through 9 uh, during further... Uh, pastoral work in Macedonia. So 1 Corinthians is written from Ephesus. 2 Corinthians is written probably from somewhere in Macedonia when he was doing other work. Could have been Thessalonica, could have been Philippi, could have been another city up there. Um, according to the um, Expositor's Bible commentary, it was likely along the Ignatian road and probably in Illyricum. And they go to Romans 15, 19 through 21 to demonstrate that. On returning to Macedonia and hearing of fresh problems at Corinth, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 10 through 13. So he, what the Expositor's Bible commentary is saying, he probably didn't write the whole letter at the same time. He wrote 1 through 9, then he wrote 10 through 13, and then he sent the whole letter to Corinth. Paul spent three months in Greece 
So that's Achaia, right down there at the bottom. If you remember where Corinth is, that's Greece. Macedonia is really uh, in the Grecian region as well, okay? So that might have been more history than you're interested in. But I always like when I'm reading all of these names in these places, I'm like, well, what does that mean? Where is that at? You know, uh, in fact, if I go the direction that I have planned on going this Sunday, I'm going to introduce something new to you. Well, at least that was new to me regarding the wilderness wandering of the Israelites. So last Sunday, I spoke of uh, the reality that the Israelites refused to go in and take the promised land, and they were told to turn back and go to the wilderness. But this Sunday, I'm going to bring up the fact that they actually conquered two pretty um, large regions in what is called the Transjordan. It's on the uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. So they weren't just wandering aimlessly through the desert. They were there were two regions right uh, where they had uh, conquered, and they had some degree of uh, I guess um, we would say security, right? They had settled. They had partially settled. They hadn't taken the promised land. But I had to look at that. I, w- I wanted to see it on the map. As I was seeing, you know, it said that they were having trouble with the Moabites. I was like, okay, remind me, Lord, where is Moab at again? I know it's in the Transjordan on the other side, right? Um, and, you know, they they conquered, uh, you know, uh, uh but uh, the uh, the region of the Ammonites on that side of the river as well. And so I had to look at that map, and that really, really helped me to put it together. So, you know, that's why your Bible has maps in the back. Don't just skip past all of that, because it will help you place this, and it will help you properly interpret all of this, okay? Um, I'm going to read this little statement from the New American Com- Commentary by Dr. David Garland. Uh, as a concluding introduction to 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, excuse me. And then next week, we're going to jump into verses 8 and following. Dr. Garland writes, he begins this letter differently because of its apologetic nature. Now, remember, an apologetic doesn't mean you're making an apology. It means that you are arguing for something. Now, see, just like the word critical that I used earlier, that we should accept healthy criticism, arguing has come to mean something negative as well, right? It's, today, arguing is typically people on two sides of an issue calling each other names. Oh, yeah, well, you're a moron. And the person that you voted for is an idiot. You don't know anything. And, you know, you're all stupid and, you know, you're, yeah, whatever name you want to you wanna throw. And it's just the two sides just throw names at each other, right? Um, but argumentation in in its uh, essence is laying out the facts of both sides of an issue, right? And seeking to come to a conclusion or a resolution. So an apologetic is laying out the argument for the truth, right? It begins this letter differently because of its apologetic nature. The switch from his normal Thanksgiving pattern hints that the rift between Paul, the division that is, between Paul and everyone in the church has not yet been completely mended. So he's still trying to get back together with the Corinthians. He recognizes that healing after a bitter altercation takes time. 
An opposing faction, perhaps a recalcitrant house church, still exists within the community. Paul, therefore, continues to defend his integrity and authority in this letter. The Corinthian correspondence reveals that some have not accepted his rebukes well. Some have questioned his motives and put the worst possible spin on his actions. When they begin to compare him unfavorably with the visiting super apostles, that's what he calls them in chapter 12, it led some to question a range of issues concerning Paul. Those disgruntled with Paul belittled his apostolic gifts, claiming that, quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. That's uh, chapter 10, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. They also distrusted his motives and accused him of unreliability, duplicity, and cowardice. Boy, that's really hard. He started this church. They even began to call into question his gospel. Uh, an interpreter named Retzel summarizes the situation well, quote, suspicious and contemptuous of Paul, the Corinthians followed instead the more glamorous gospel of the new apostles and preferred their spirituality and radiant personalities to Paul. So we're going to see that in this letter. This letter is, uh, is a lot more harsh, I guess you could say. Um, he's really, really trying to win them back and he's really, really trying to uh, speak against the untruths that are, have been introduced to them by these false teachers, okay? So that's what you've got to look forward to. It's going to be a fun ride, right? So you can come every week and, you know, hear how the Corinthians were not treating Paul very well. And, you know, if you've been in church terribly long, that's just the way churches roll, Okay. A friend and I were talking about a former church last night and some of the uh, rancorous, cantankerous, tr difficult people that uh, uh, we had encountered in that church. Listen, churches are full of sheeple, right? And as a friend of mine used to say all the time, sheep stink, <laughs> but they're not the enemy. Amen? So we got to learn to get along with you. We're not perfect. And, you know, if you're going to flee to a different church because our church is imperfect, well, you will soon make that church imperfect because you are imperfect too, and all of us are. We just need to have grace and love each other and get along and, yeah, do the best that we can. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week.